Chapter Twenty Two, Part One of Hypatia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hypatia by Charles Kingsley, Chapter Twenty Two, Pandemonium, Part One. But where was Philemon all that week? For the first day or two of his imprisonment he had raped like one wild beast entrapped. His newfound purpose and energy, thus suddenly damped back and checked, boiled up in a frantic rage. He tore at the bars of his prison, he rolled himself shrieking on the floor. He called in vain on Hypatia, on Pelagia, on Arsenius, on all but God. Pray he could not, and dare not, for to whom was he to pray? To the stars, to the abysses, and the eternities? Alas, as Augustine said once, bitterly enough, of his own Manichean teachers, Hypatia had taken away the living God, and given him instead the four elements. And in utter bewilderment and hopeless terror, he implored the pity of every god and girler who passed along the corridor, and conjured them as brothers, fathers, men to help him. Moved at once by his agony and by his exceeding beauty, the rough Thracians, who knew enough of the employer's character to have little difficulty in believing his victim to be innocent, listened to him and questioned him. But when they offered the very help which he implored, and asked him to tell his story, the poor boy's tongue clove to the roof of his mouth. How could he publish his sister's shame? And yet she was about to publish it herself. And instead of words, he met their condolences with fresh agonies, till they gave him up as mad. And, tired by his violence, compelled him with blows and curses to remain quiet. And so the week wore out, in dull and stupefied despair, which trembled on the very edge of idiocy. Night and day were alike to him. The food which was thrust in through his grate remained untasted. Hour after hour, day after day, he sat upon the ground, his head buried in his hands, half dozing from mere exhaustion of body and mind. Why should he care to stir, to eat, to live? He had but one purpose in heaven and earth, and that one purpose was impossible. At last his cell door grated on his hinges. Up, my mad youth, cried a rough voice. Up, and thank the favor of the gods and the bounty of your noble <coughs> prefect. Today he gives freedom to all prisoners. And I suppose a pretty boy like you may go about your business as well as uglier rascals. Philemon looked up in the careless face with a dim half-comprehension of his meaning. Do you hear? cried the man with a curse. You are free. Jump up, or rush at the door again, and your one chance is over. Uh, did she dance Venus Diomene? She, who? My sister, Pelagia. Heaven only knows what she has not done in her time, but they say she dances today once more. Quick, out, 
I shall not be ready in time for the sports. They begin an hour hence. Free admissions into the theatre to-day for all, rogues and honest men, Christians and Athens. Curse the boy, he is as mad as ever. So indeed Philammon seemed, for, springing suddenly to his feet, he rushed out past the gala, upsetting him into the corridor, and fled wildly from the prison among the crowd of liberated ruffians, ran from the prison home, from home to the baths, from the baths to the theatre, and was soon pushing his way, regardless of etiquette, towards the lower tiers of benches, in order, he hardly knew why, to place himself as near as possible to the very side which he dreaded and abhorred. As fate would have it, the passage by which he had entered opened close to the prefect's share of state, where sat Orestes, gorgeous in his robes of office, and by him, to Philemon's surprise and horror, Hypatia herself. More beautiful than ever, her forehead sparkling like Juno's own, with a lofty tiara of jewels, her white yonic robe half hidden by a crimson shawl, there sat the vestal, the philosopher. What did she there? But the boy's eager eyes, accustomed but too well to note every light and shade of feeling which crossed that face, saw in a moment how wan and haggard was its expression. She wore a look of constraint, of half-terrified self-resolve, as of a martyr, and yet not an undoubted martyr, for, as Orestes turned his head at the stir of Philammon's intrusion, and, flashing with anger at the sight, motioned him firstly back, Hypatia turned to, and as her eyes met her pupils, she blushed crimson, and started, and seemed in act to motion him back also, and then, recollecting herself, whispered something to Orestes, which quieted his wrath, and composed herself, or rather sank into her place again, as one who was determined to abide the worst. A knot of gay young gentlemen, Philammon's fellow-students, put him down among them, with welcome and laughter, and before he could collect his thoughts, the curtain in front of the stage had fallen, and the sport began. The scene represented a background of desert mountains, and on the stage itself, before a group of temporary huts, stood huddling together the black Libyan prisoners, some fifty men, women and children, bedizened with gaudy feathers and girls of tasseled leather, brandishing their spears and targets, and glaring out with white eyes on the strange scene before them, in childish awe and wonder. Along the front of the stage a wattled battlement had been erected, while below the hyposcenium had been painted to represent rocks, thus completing the rough imitation of a village among the Libyan hills. Amid breathless silence a herald advanced and proclaimed that these were prisoners taken in arms against the Roman senate and people, and therefore worthy of immediate death but that the prefect, in his exceeding clemency toward them, and especial anxiety to afford the greatest possible amusement to the obedient and loyal citizens of Alexandria, 
had determined, instead of giving them at once to the beasts, to allow them to fight for their lives, promising to the survivors a free pardon if they acquitted themselves valiantly. The poor wretches on the stage, when this proclamation was translated to them, set up a barbaric yell of joy and brandished their spears and targets more fiercely than ever. But their joy was short. The trumpets sounded the attack. A body of gladiators, equal in number to the savages, marched out from one of the two great side passages, made their obeisance to the applauding spectators, and planting their scaling ladders against the front of the stage, mounted to the attack. The Libyans fought like tigers, yet from the first Hypatia and Philammon also could see that their promised chance of life was a mere mockery. Their light darts and naked limbs were no match for the heavy shawls and a complete armor of their brutal assailants, who endured carelessly a storm of blows and thrusts on heads and faces protected by visored helmets. Yet so fierce was the valor of the Libyans that even they recalled twice, and twice the scaling ladders were hurled down again, while more than one gladiator lay below, rolling in the death agony. And then burst forth the sleeping devil in the hearts of that great brutalized multitude. Yell upon yell of savage triumph, and still more savage disappointment, rang from every tire of that vast ring of seats, at each blow and parry, onslaught and repulse and Philemon saw with horror and surprise that luxury, refinement, philosophic culture itself were no safeguards against the infection of bloodthirstiness. Gay and delicate ladies, whom he had seen three days before, simpering delight at Hypatia's heavenward aspirations, and some, too, whom he seemed to recollect in Christian churches, sprang from their seats, waved their hands and handkerchiefs, and clapped and shouted to the gladiators, for, alas, there was no doubt as to which side the favor of the spectators inclined. With taunts, jeers, applause, entreaties, the hired ruffians were urged on to their work of blood. The poor wretches heard no voice raised in their favor. Nothing but contempt, hatred, eager lust of blood, glared from those thousands of pitiless eyes. And broken-hearted, despairing, they flagged and drew back one by one. A shout of triumph greeted the gladiators as they climbed over the battlement and gained a footing on the stage. The rest blacks broke up and fled wildly from corner to corner, looking vainly for an outlet. And then began a butchery. Some fifty men, women, and children were cooped together in that narrow space. And yet Hypatia's countenance did not falter. Why should it? What were their numbers, besides the thousands who had perished year by year for centuries, by that and far worse deaths in the amphitheaters of that empire, for that faith which she was vowed to re-establish? It was part of the great system, and she must endure it. Not that she did not feel, for she too was a woman, 
and her heart, raised far above the brutal excitement of the multitude, lay calmly open to the most poignant stings of pity. Again and again she was in the act to entreat mercy for some shrieking woman or struggling child. But before her lips could shape the words, the blow had fallen, or the wretch was whirled away from her sight in the dense undistinguishable mass of slayers and slain. Yes, she had begun, and she must follow to the end. And after all, what were the lives of those few semi-brutes, returning thus a few years earlier to the clay from which they sprang, compared with the regeneration of a world? And it would be over in a few minutes more, and that black writing heap be still for ever, and the curtain of fall. And then, for Venus Anadiomene, and art, and joy, and peace, and the graceful wisdom and beauty of the old Greek art, calming and civilizing all hearts, and softening them into pure devotion for the immortal myths, the immortal deities who had inspired their forefathers in the glorious days of old. But still the black heap writhed, and she looked away, up, down, and round everywhere, to avoid the sickening sight. And her eye caught Philemon's gazing at her with looks of horror and disgust. A thrill of shame rushed through her heart, and blushing scarlet she sank her head and whispered to Orestes, Have mercy, spare the rest. Nay, first Vestal, the mob has tasted blood, and they must have their fill of it, or they will turn onus for aught I know. Nothing so dangerous as to check a brute, whether he be horse, dog, or man, when once his spirit is up. Ha! There's a fugitive! How well the little rascal runs! As he spoke, a boy, the only survivor, leapt from the stage and rushed across the orchestra towards them, followed by a rough curdock. You shall have this youth, if he reaches us. Hypatia was breathless. The boy had just arrived at the altar in the center of orchestra, when he saw a gladiator close upon him. The ruffian's arm was raised to strike, when, to the astonishment of the whole theater, boy and dog turned valiantly to bay, and leaping on the gladiator dragged him between them to the ground. The triumph was momentary. The uplifted hands, the shout of, Spare him! came too late. The man, as he lay, buried his sword in the splendor body of the child, and then rising, walked coolly back to the side passages, while the poor cur stood over the little corpse, licking its hands and face, and making the whole building ring with his doleful cries. The attendants entered, and striking their hooks into corpse after corpse, dragged them out of sight, marking their path by long red furrows in the sand, while the dog followed until his inauspicious holings died away down distant passages. Philemon felt sick and giddy, and half rose to escape, but 
Pelagia! No, he must sit it out and see the worst, if worse than this was possible. He looked round. The people were coolly sipping wine and eating cakes, while they chat admirably about the beauty of the great curtain, which had fallen and hidden the stage, and represented on a ground of deep blue sea, Europa carried by the bull across the Bosphorus, while Nereids and Tritons played around. A single flute within the curtain began to send forth luscious strains, deadened and distant, as if through far-off glens and woodlands. And from the side passages issued three graces, led by Patho, the goddess of persuasion, bearing a herald staff in her hand. She advanced to the altar in the centre of the orchestra, and informed the spectators that, during the absence of Ares in aid of a certain great military expedition, which was shortly to decide the diadem of Rome, and the liberty, prosperity, and supremacy of Egypt and Alexandria, Aphrodite had returned to her lawful allegiance, and submitted for the time being to the commands of her husband, Hephaestus, and that he, as the deity of artificers, felt a peculiar interest in the welfare of the city of Alexandria, the workshop of the work, and had, as a sign of his especial favour, prevailed upon his fair spouse to exhibit for this once her beauties to the assembled populace, and in the unspoken poetry of motion to represent to them the emotions with which, as she arose newborn from the sea, she first surveyed that fair expanse of heaven and earth of which she now reigned undisputed queen. A shout of rapturous applause greeted this announcement, and forthwith limped from the opposite slip the lame deity himself, hammer and pincers on shoulder, followed by a train of gigantic cyclops, who bore on their shoulders various pieces of gilded metalwork. Hephaestus, who was intended to supply the comic element in the vast pantomimic pageant, shambled forward with studied uncouthness amid roars of laughter, surveyed the altar with ludicrous content, raised his mighty hammer, shivered it to pieces with a single blow, and beckoned to his attendants to carry off the fragments and replace it with something more fitting for his august spouse. With wonderful quickness the metal openwork was put in its place and fitted together, forming a frame of coral branches intermingled with dolphins, nereids and tritons. Four gigantic cyclops then approached, staggering under the fate of a circular slab of green marble, polished to a perfect mirror, which they placed on the framework. The graces wreathed its circumference with garlands of seaweed, shells and corallines, and the mimic sea was complete. Patho and the graces retired a few steps, 
and grooved themselves with the cyclops, whose grimed and brawny limbs and hideous one-eyed masks threw out in striking contrast the delicate hue and grace of the beautiful maiden figures, while Hephaestus turned toward the curtain and seemed to await impatiently the forthcoming of the goddess. Every lip was breathless with expectations, as the flute swelled louder and nearer, horns and cymbals took up the harmony, and to a triumphant burst of music the curtain rose, and a simultaneous shout of delight burst from ten thousand voices. The scene behind represented a magnificent temple, half hidden in an artificial wood of tropic trees and shrubs which filled the stage. Fawns and dryads peeped laughing from among their stems, and gorgeous birds, tethered by unseen threads, fluttered and sang among the branches. In the center, an overarching avenue of palms led from the temple door to the front of the stage, from which the mimic battlements had disappeared, and had been replaced in those few moments by a broad slope of smooth greensward, leading down into the orchestra, and fringed with myrtles, roses, apple trees, poppies, and crimson hyacinths, stained with the lifeblood of Adonis. The folding doors of the temple opened slowly, the crash of instruments resounded from within, and preceded by the musicians came forth a triumph of Aphrodite, and passed down the slope and down the outer ring of the orchestra. A splendid car, drawn by white oxen, bore the rarest and gaudiest of foreign flowers and fruits, which young girls, dressed as hours and seasons, strewed in front of the procession and among the spectators. A long line of beautiful youths and maidens, ground with garlands and roped in uh, scarfs of purple gauze, followed by two and two. Each pair carried, or led, a pair of wild animals, captives to the conquering might of beauty. Foremost were born, on the wrists of the actors, the birds especially sacred to the goddess, doves and sparrows, rhinex and swallows, and a pair of gigantic Indian tortoises, each ridden by a lovely nymph, showed that Orestes had not forgotten one wish, at least, of his intended bride. Then followed strange birds from India, parakeets, peacocks, pheasants silver and golden, bastards and ostriches, the latter bestridden each by a tiny cupid, were led on in golden leashes, followed by antelopes and oryxes, elks from beyond the Danube, four-horned rams from the isles of the Hyperborean Ocean, and the strange hybrid of the Libyan hills, believed by all spectators to be half bull, half horse. And then a murmur of delighted awe ran through the theatre, as bears and leopards, lions and tigers, fettered in heavy chains of gold, and made gentle for the occasions by narcotics, faced sedately down the slope, obedient 
to their beautiful guides, while behind them the unwieldy bulk of two double-horned rhinoceroses from the far south was overtopped by the long slender necks and large soft eyes of a pair of giraffes such as had not been seen in Alexandria for more than fifty years. End of chapter 22, part 1